0: This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. Having women on the field in large university marching bands is so common, most people don't think twice about it. But that wasn't always the case. The dean of women was not happy about this whole idea, especially the idea that we
1: would go off to band camp.
0: That story and more this West Virginia Morning. The Pleasance Power Plant in Pleasance County is scheduled to shut down next year, but there's still a chance someone will buy it. As Curtis Tate reports, not everyone thinks that's a good idea.
2: The Pleasance Plant sits on the Ohio River just north of Parkersburg. Energy Harbor plans to shut it down in June 2023 because it no longer produces electricity economically for the PJM regional power market as it did for many years. However, there are three potential non-traditional uses for the plant, according to the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. The plant could be converted to produce hydrogen from natural gas. It could generate power for cryptocurrencies, which require a lot of energy. A coal company could purchase the plant to guarantee a user for its production.
3: But they've left that door open just a little teeny tiny bit for somebody if they want to buy it.
2: That's energy analyst Dennis Womstead. Womstead argues there are many reasons the plant would not be a good investment. First, the plant is more than 40 years old and would require a lot of upgrades. Second, renewables are getting cheaper, and the recently enacted Inflation Reduction Act includes new incentives for wind, solar, and battery storage. Third, it just isn't competitive with other plants in PJM, a regional power market that includes West Virginia and a dozen other states.
3: You can't buy a 45-year-old coal plant and make it economic today in PJM. It's not going to get more efficient. It's not going to get cheaper. It's not going to get younger. Maintenance costs are going up. So you, you end up with a plant that's costing you boatloads of money, and you're making no revenue off of
2: it. Further, he says there are powerful incentives to help the community plan for a future without the plant. Federal money is available specifically to assist coal and power plant communities.
3: And the right thing to do would be to start planning to transition away from it It won't be popular, but that would that would definitely make sense.
2: For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Curtis Tate in Charleston.
0: The Allegheny Front, based in Pittsburgh, is a public radio program that reports on environmental issues in the region. Here's their latest story on the 60th anniversary of the groundbreaking book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson.
4: It's the 60th anniversary of a book that sounded the alarm about our indiscriminate use of chemicals and made science accessible to regular readers. This is the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsoppel. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, was published on September 27, 1962.
5: She was the first, really, in a popular way to uh, bring forward the, the fact that synthetic chemistry is not the marvel that the chemical industry had projected it to be.
4: That's Jack Doyle, a mostly retired research analyst and author. He's been writing about contemporary history and pop culture at his site, The Pop History Dig, since 2008, where he meticulously researches articles on everything from sports to environmental history.
5: I'm pretty fanatic about it.
4: And he's written about Carson's book and its legacy.
5: Silent Spring was originally released at a time when chemistry was just the top shelf in the economy. I mean, you had major, major companies, DuPont, Dow, and, and others that were making, you know, huge profits on these new substances. But this was a time when we trusted the golden horn of science to deliver wonder products. You know, wonder products came forward uh, from all of these companies, and uh, they weren't challenged. They, they just weren't inspected beforehand. It was used first, asked questions later. And the genie was out of the bottle.
4: But Carson did challenge the use of these new chemicals and pesticides, particularly DDT, an insecticide first used in the 1940s. Doyle says she wasn't a radical in the sense that she stormed the barricades. She used her scientific training and thoughtful, methodical research to make her case.
5: And she had amassed quite a library and a research dossier of of DDT's effects around the world. And You know, that comprised sort of the backbone of her story.
4: At the time, DDT was sprayed in a fog over crops, among other applications. Carson wrote about how the chemical didn't just kill the insects it targeted. In her example, DDT was sprayed on elm trees to protect them from a beetle. But the chemical remained on the leaves. When the leaves fell from the trees, earthworms ate them. Those earthworms were eaten by robins who mysteriously could not reproduce. Other robins died, leading to a silent spring.
5: She showed how minute amounts of chemicals were being biomagnified in the uh, system. And in the process, she brought forward the whole notion of ecology, ecological system. And in a fashion, uh, her work became sort of the backbone for the modern environmental movement. But there was a cost.
4: Doyle says the chemical industry pushed back swiftly.
5: She was called everything from a a nature nut to a a communist uh, for for her uh, critique. And uh, she withstood it, and she was vindicated.
4: Doyle says the Kennedy White House formed a scientific advisory panel to look into pesticides. Its report a year later showed her work was sound. And for Doyle, it still resonates.
5: Very relevant, in fact, to... uh, What we're seeing today, I mean, we we have an onslaught of 80,000 chemicals in commerce, and 2,000 are invented every year. The worry is that we're nowhere close to having good toxicological profiles of what those chemicals do.
4: Jack Doyle writes the Pop History Dig website, where you can find his story about Rachel Carson and many other environmental and historical figures and events. He wrote an op-ed in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette this spring entitled, 60 Years Ago, Pittsburgh's Rachel Carson Was More Right Than She Knew. There's more at AlleghenyFront.org. That's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holzapfel.
0: The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 751. Becoming mostly sunny today and breezy, high temperatures in the 50s and low 60s. Mostly clear tonight with low temperatures in the 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, highs in the 50s and 60s. Wednesday, partly sunny, a slight chance of rain in the north, high temperatures in the 50s and 60s. Support for WVPB is provided by the Kanawha County Public Library. Now open in downtown Charleston with more public space, technology, and children's resources. More at kcpls.org. This college football season, West Virginia University's marching band is recognizing 50 years since women entered their ranks. Reporter and former member of the band, Shepard Snyder, spoke to some of the original female members.
3: The Mountaineer Marching Band started as a males-only military band in 1901. Back then, every man attending WD was required to take at least one course in military science, and joining the band was a way to fulfill that requirement while continuing their interest in music. Fast forward to the early 1970s, and female students are participating in their high school marching bands across the country. But aside from a period during World War II, many collegiate marching bands still excluded women. It was a point of contention for students like Joyce Dully. She says pushing for opportunities for women to join collegiate marching bands was important to her as a music education major.
4: That limited the scope of applying for jobs, you know, you couldn't apply to high school. Etc. if you had no marching band experience.
3: Fellow student and eventual bandmate Angie Bowman says Dully started a petition to allow women to join.
1: They said that Penn State disallowed females in the band, marching band, and so we should be able to be in. So I signed the petition, and then soon after I received a letter about band camp.
3: Dully says she doesn't remember exactly if she was the one who created the petition or not, but she also doesn't doubt it. The addition of Women in the Band coincided with the creation of Title IX, the famous law that banned gender discrimination at federally funded universities. But one of the first women in the band, Jill Cochran, says it also came from a push from the band's that new director, Don Wilcox.
1: He's the one who said, let's do it. The dean of women was not happy about this whole idea, especially the idea that we would go off to band camp at Camp Dawson in Preston County with all of those (sighs)
3: Wilcox entered the position in 1971 and is credited with making much of the band's style and presentation the way it is today. He's now celebrated as the director of bands Emeritus by the WVU School of Music. After sign-ups took place and acceptance letters were sent out, Cochran, Dully, Bowman, and nine other women made the trip to Camp Dawson for band camp. This inaugural class became known as the Dirty Dozen, a moniker the group took in stride. Dully remembers excitement, not fear at the opportunity.
1: I wasn't scared. I, I don't know if any of us were afraid. We were, like,
4: empowered. Like, yeah, this is no big deal. We can do this. We've done it in high school.
3: Dully says a lot of the men initially thought the new members wouldn't be able to keep up. But that assumption changed quickly.
4: It was an awareness of, oh, they're not going to screw us up, so we're okay. (laughs) They're going to add to it. They're not falling down and fainting, and, or whatever they
0: expected.
3: A page on the band's website detailing its history says the 1971 season fielded an all-male band of only 88 members, but by the end of the decade, the band ballooned to around 280. Eileen Smith-Dalabrida, who joined the band during the 72 season but after that first band camp, says she thinks the addition to add women was also a matter of practicality.
1: Having women in the band vastly expanded the pool of, of musicians. And by 1975, the fall of 1975, there were more people who wanted to be in the band than there were positions for them.
3: For those original alumni, joining the marching band ended up giving them lifelong memories. Della Brida says she remembers her first game and how proud she felt to be on the field.
1: I remember the first game that they we, we were all encouraged to let that literally let down our hair so that people in the stands could see that there were some women, even though there weren't very many of us, that there were women out on the field.
3: Today, the WVU marching band consistently hovers around the 300-member mark, and half of its members are women. Heather Miller, a fifth-year member of today's band, says her interest in joining a big marching band was something passed down from her mother.
1: It was one of the major reasons I wanted to go to a university when I was looking at education after high school. When she marched in the early 90s, she was given that opportunity which inspired me.
3: In Angie Bowman's case, she found her husband of nearly 50 years. She and her then-boyfriend Dale started dating after the 72 band camp and got married in the winter of 1974.
1: Mr. Wilcox always likes to remind my husband and I that we started something. We may have been the first marriage out of the band, but there have been many, many matches since that.
3: Cochran says she's in the middle of an internet-wide search for the Dirty Dozen so they can meet and have dinner after this year's homecoming game.
1: I've I've turned into Sherlock Holmes, or or sort of a modern-day Sherlock Holmes, trying to chase people down through the internet. And when I get them on the phone, it's as if, oh gosh, we haven't talked for a month or two, so let's chat again. (laughs)
3: Scott Tobias, director of bands at WVU, says that this year, the band is recognizing the anniversary during their homecoming halftime show, inviting those original alumni to be honored on the field. Sometimes you look at it as a historical
2: event and don't think about what the ramifications of that event you know, actually were or are. We're also looking at what that means today.
3: Cochran says every time she visits Morgantown for Homecoming, she's pointed out to the current members as one of the first women in the band. She appreciates this year's celebration, but she just hopes the recognition inspires young women to continue to pave the way forward. They
1: don't believe that there could ever have been a time when women weren't in the band. I don't need to be on the jumbotron and and have somebody call out my name, but I would like people to know that we did something. We we tried to make the world a little bit better for you.
3: For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Shepard Snyder in Martinsburg.
0: West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from West Virginia University, Concord University, and Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Caroline McGregor, Curtis Tate, Chris Schultz, David Adkins, Eric Douglas, Jessica Lilly, Liz McCormick, Randy Yoey and Shepard Snyder. Eric Douglas is our news director and he produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning.